Hi, I'm Alex Bernstein. And I'm Ted Wrigley. And you're listening to Curtains on Fire, the theatrical podcast of the Rising Curtain Theater Company in New Jersey. What's on tap for today, Ted? I'm very excited about today's podcast because it features three breathtaking original works by the newest members of Curtains on Fire, Lee Cohn, Janet Weekly, and Bobby LeWillier. And these are all heavy dramas? No, no, it's a great mix of styles and ideas. We have broad comedy, drug addiction, and even something of a psycho killer lurking around the edges. In, in different pieces? Yes, not all the same piece. Although I suppose that could be open to interpretation. Fantastic. And of course, we'll be interviewing all of our authors at the end. Yes, we will. Well, then let's get to it. Who's up first, Ted? Our first piece takes place in a small cafe. This is London by Lee Cohn. You look amazing. Stop it, you. No, really. You haven't changed a bit. It's super annoying. <laughs> Trust me, my arse takes up a lot more space on the tube than it used to. Your arse looks great. Oh, been perusing my arse, have you? Okay, first of all, in a civilized world, it's pronounced ass. And to stare at a woman's ass, or arse, that I haven't seen in over 20 years would be rude. So that's a yes? Oh, big time. <laughs> <laughs> you look good too, Michael. Truly, the years have been good to you. Thank you. My two biggest fears about aging are baldness and moobs. So far, so good. What in the world are moobs? Man boobs. Ah, I see. So what's the secret to your ever youthful appearance? Poor life choices. Helps build the immune system. Really? Oh yes. That's pure, legit science right there. They've been studying me for years. Have they? And what have they come up with? They're pretty sure I'm an alien, <laughs> but I think that's because they've exhausted every other theory. <laughs> I see. And do you drink tea on your home planet? I do. Milk, no sugar, please. Live long and prosper. Nerd. <laughs> When's the last time you were here? You know, I honestly can't remember. We were at school, I think. When I come down to London, it's work, then right back on the train. Besides, too many tourists. Mm. Oh, yeah. Especially them ugly Americans. What with their sequined cowboy hats and fat wallets. Who needs them? Funny. Seeing you, it feels like I was here just yesterday. Isn't that odd? Not at all. Some things I remember chapter and verse. Other things, you know, kind of foggy. It's been years, love. Yeah. That and the drugs. What comes immediately to mind? What do you mean? From the old days. Don't think, just say it. First thing you think of, good or bad. Um, tell you what, I'll go first. Deal? Deal. I remember playing opposite you. Oh, my forever Romeo. My forever Juliet. I remember what an impossible creature I thought you were. How do you mean? Just, I mean, how could anybody be that beautiful, that talented, and that nice? Did you know I had a raging crush on you? I rather suspected. And then you know, new show, new cast, see you in class, right? <laughs> yes, they kept us quite busy. 
But we were the talk of the school, you and I, for a hot minute. We were? Oh, yes. Didn't you know? <laughs> Clueless. Oh, laddie, the rumors flew. Everyone went on about the kiss. Oh, yeah. The kiss. You know, I always thought we should have rehearsed that a lot more. Did you? Yes, but in truth, it wasn't necessary. You were the perfect Juliet. And you were the perfect Romeo. Boyish, with a flash of temper. Sexy. Well, I was 20. I was sort of a boy-ish. And I was still sort of a girl-ish. Mm, see, that's the thing. You seemed like a woman. An actual, complete, grown-up woman. Well, I was. Ish. More than ish, I think. So that's what came to mind. You, me, the immortal bard, and an epic stage kiss. A fond memory for me as well. It's good to know. Okay, your turn. Well, I was sworn to secrecy, but I think the statute of limitations has expired. Ooh, secrets. Love it. Remember Sally Dobb, the posh one? Of course I do. She was very cool in her own super privileged sort of way. Whatever happened to her? Oh, got married, moved to Australia, had a bunch of kids. When was that? Ages ago. Did she keep acting? Or... Michael, do you want to hear the story or not? My lips are zipped. Much better. Now, Sally decided we were to have a girls' night at her place. It was, uh, oh God, let me see. Me, Sal, Jenny Bell, Jackie, um, uh, the, the one who became a writer, uh, Katrina, the Scottish girl, Madeline, the dishy American, Lucy, one or two others. The thought of all that pulchritude in 90s and PJs is mind-boggling. <laughs> if you tell me there was a pillow fight, I may faint. Let's just say there were quite a few knickers and brawls on display. Girls are like that. God love them. Now, given the fact that Sally was hosting the party, I don't think you'll be shocked to hear that there was quite a bit of alcohol consumed that night. No. Ha! Did you play drinking games? Games? No, love. We just drank. Why waste time? Right, sure. So... Being girls in our underwear and somewhere between pleasantly buzzed and utterly plastered, we of course started talking about the boys at the school. Like you do. Like you do, yes. Started out innocently enough, who was good looking, who was secretly gay, who we thought might be large in the pants. Ooh, I'm wondering how, just how graphic things got. Well, again, drunk and horny. Plus, girls are disgusting. You didn't mention the horny part. I presumed it was given. Right. Anyway, at a certain point, your name came up. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Sally mentioned that you had stayed over at her place the night before you were to travel. Oh, jeez. I remember that. She lived right near the train station. We slept in the same room, separate beds. My 20-year-old self nearly imploded. Sally said you got in bed with your shirt off and you were quite impressive. Surprisingly so. Oh? She liked the twinkle in your eye as well. I don't mean to boast, but I have been told I twinkle like a boss. Hush. She then drunkenly confessed that she thought of jumping in your bed, but didn't because you felt like her little brother or something. But she came this close. Please kill me. Maybe later. So then, the conversation got round to how much sexual experience you had, and we all decided not much. How dare you be so accurate? 
<laughs> but hey, it's not like I was a virgin. To us you were. So we decided that since we were all a bit older, one of us had to have sex with you that you might learn a thing or two. Come on. Hand to God. You're making this up. No, Michael. You're taking the piss. I swear on a stack of Bibles I do not believe in that it's all true. <sighs> okay. Shall I continue? Please. So, we all did another shot and set about deciding which of us would do the deed. It was quite funny, really. Everyone had an argument as to why someone else should do it. Oi, Madeline, you've got the biggest tits. You fucking do it. Her tits were pretty big, and they seemed to defy gravity. Oh, my God, you have no idea. I saw the woman in a bra. Woof. But Maddie said no. Figures, the dirty job nobody wanted. Oh, we had a volunteer or two. Really? Who? Mmm, can't remember. Uh-huh. So then Sally, ever the instigator of that one, wobbled to her feet and announced, I vote for Julia. They were so adorable as Romeo and Juliet. It has to be Julia. And everyone agreed, and then she threw up. And? And I said yes. You did? I did. Wow. Indeed. Wow. I, I mean, wow. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But you never... No. Why not? Because you were such a sweet boy, Michael. And I knew. I could tell. End of the day, it would have been cruel. Great fun, I'm sure, but cruel. Why cruel? Because there were feelings involved, love. On both sides? Yes. More tea? I'm good. Are you upset? No, not at all. You sure? Yes. I'm flattered, actually. Just wish I'd been less shy. Asked you out on a proper date. Proper date. How very English of you. Hey, I still speak your weird version of American. To lost opportunities, may they rest in peace. L'chaim. Nice. So, how long are you in town? Two more days, then New York to see my kids, then back to La La Land. You should come for a visit. Oh, I'd like that very much. You're welcome anytime. Bring the hubby. Oh, God, no. I'd want to have fun. My spidey sense detects a lack of meritable bliss. You are correct, Peter Parker. Married in name only. Separate lives now. Yeah, been there. It sucks. It does. But I cope. What choice do we have? None, I suppose. So what are you doing? Rest of the afternoon. I think we should hop round to your hotel and rehearse that kiss. Let's get it right this time. Oh. Oh. Our next play takes place in an interrogation room at a police station. This is Monster by Bobby Lewillier.
I'm not sorry, you know, Detective. I would do it again. You made that pretty clear, Lisa. It was... Well, to be honest, it was liberating. That's seriously fucked up. You don't understand. He had turned completely evil. Like spoiled milk. You know, existentially. I I did the right thing. I don't have a goddamn clue what you mean. I saw him almost every day of his life. You can pretend for a while everything's okay, but deep down in your lizard brain, you know the truth. You feel the wrongness. It's like, it's like spraying air freshener to try to cover up the smell of cat piss. Everybody pretends they can't smell it until they can't pretend anymore. What? We have three cats. If you're not going to say anything else useful... What else is there to say? I did it! You know I did it. You've got my confession on tape. What are we waiting for? I just want to know why. Your own kid. Why? We've been over this and over this. I told you he was evil. And I saw his plan. Tell me about the plan again. Fine. This kid I hounded to do his homework, to pick up a book and read, to learn to write a coherent sentence. That same kid had a notebook so filled with details with every step he planned to take. He had 122 classmates and teachers listed in that, in his, in his kill book. Where did you find this notebook? I told you, he dropped it. He was taking his backpack out to his car this morning and he didn't zip it closed. There was too much crap in there. Anyway, he, he didn't see it fall out. I picked it up, I, I didn't mean to look, but it fell open and there was this drawing all red ink, so detailed. I, I didn't know he could draw like that. So then you... You know what happened next. Humor me. I'm trying to help you here. No, you're not. He took his backpack out. Then he came back. He told me he was going to. I don't remember why. I was so freaked out. I couldn't think straight. I heard him coming, and I tossed the notebook on top of the fridge. I didn't want him to see me with it. He came in. He wasn't paying attention to me at all. He had his back to me. The knife was on the counter. I just, you know, I just did what I had to stop the threat. Jesus, Lisa. You knifed your own kid in the back. You did a job, too. He bled out on your kitchen floor. Wait, wait a minute. You said his car was full of guns? When did you see that? I went outside to flag down the ambulance. No one can ever find our house. Yeah, I called them. It was a reflex. I knew they couldn't save him. In retrospect, I should have just called the cops. Damn right you should have called us. Like, maybe before you decided to stab him? Jesus! So anyway, I looked in his car and saw the duffel bags for them in the back seat. You opened them? Where'd he get the guns? My ex-husband likes, liked to take him to gun shows on his weekends. I wouldn't let him keep any guns at our house, but he just got back from seeing his dad. You said it was liberating. What's that mean? You ever had a really bad pain? I mean excruciating. And it just keeps ratcheting up and up and then something happens and it's just gone? And the relief just takes your breath away because you couldn't take it anymore and didn't know how to make it stop? Like that. What if he wasn't really going to go through with it? Did you ever think of that? And what if he was? 122 people on that list. What about them? What about all their families and friends? I tried to get him help, 
He wouldn't talk to the shrinks. He was great at pretending he was normal, but I knew better. You're going to prison over a notebook. My son couldn't be fixed. You can't fix monsters. And I won't feel bad about undoing the mistake I created. Look, if you could hop in a time machine and go back and kill Hitler at 17, wouldn't you do it? Wouldn't you take out the evil before it got loose? Wouldn't you save all those people? What about all the good Hitler did? What about the art he created? I want a lawyer. Our final play today takes place in the auditorium of a rehab center. This is The Promises by Janet Weekly. Hi everyone and welcome. My name is Mikey. I'm an addict. We're going to open today's meeting with a reading from The Promises. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We'll comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. We'll intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They'll always materialize if we work for them. I'd now like to introduce our speaker. I've known Janet for, uh, what, is it about five months now? She comes to meetings on a regular basis, volunteers to set up, make coffee, always with a smile. She works a great program. In fact, she got clean and sober at this very treatment center, which, incidentally, is where I began my own journey of recovery. So, I give you Janet. Hi, everyone. My name is Janet. I'm an addict. I started using when I was in seventh grade. I was 11. My drug of choice was amphetamines, well, diet pills. Um, a doctor prescribed them to my mother, and they worked so well for her that she passed them on to me and my sister. We were fat, and my mother believed that the three most important things in life were to be thin, pretty, and smart, in that order. When I took my first pill, I felt so good. I thought, oh, so this is how I'm supposed to feel. They made me thin, motivated, my shyness went away. The terrible anxiety I felt over my parents' nonstop arguing was smoothed over. They were divorced and living in different states and they couldn't exchange a civil word between them. So I served as my mother's mouthpiece. It became my job, and it was awful. There were times when she made me call my dad 12 times in one day to beg and pester him for money until he caved into her demands. She was financially dependent upon him until the day he died. Having to be their go-between felt like I was carrying a 100-pound weight on my back. But as long as I could take a pill, I didn't mind doing it. Pills were my secret weapon. My life was really humming along. I made the cheerleading squad, the homecoming court. I was chosen to be a calendar girl. And in my junior year, I discovered my passion, acting. 
my life's direction was set and I was heading full speed ahead toward a happy, successful life. With the pills, I was able to study from afternoon to midnight and by graduation, I got into every Ivy League school I applied to. It looked like all my dreams were coming true. But now I was completely addicted, needing six pills a day to function and my downward spiral was about to begin. I somehow made it through college as a double major in English and theater, but senior year, I had a nervous breakdown. First, I stopped doing my laundry. I would create piles of dirty clothes in the corners, and instead of carrying them downstairs to the laundry room, I just bagged them up and threw them in the trash. I wandered around campus in a black wool coat from Goodwill, and I avoided the quad completely, instead took the back routes behind buildings. I'd fallen so far behind that I wasn't able to graduate on time, even though I had entered freshman year five credits ahead. I'd squandered my education and was completely unprepared for real life. My mom suggested that I come home and go on a health program and rest for two weeks, which I did and never left. Spent the next 20 years by my mother's side, supplying our drugs and taking over the cat chores. We had 23 cats. I left the house only to go to the grocery store, the doctor's office, and the pharmacy. I had no other contact with the world. I spent my days in bed and my nights watching television and staring out the windows at imaginary possums. I would root through my trunk of old books and papers from high school, longing for that smart, hardworking girl to reappear and take charge. I spent every night going through old pictures, wondering how I lost my looks at 21. I bore no resemblance to the girl in the pictures. My skin was dehydrated and sallow. My eyes were dead. My teeth were yellow and my gums had receded. Then to my horror, my lower bridge fell out, leaving me toothless in the back. My breath smelled like a dirty turtle tank. My cheeks had collapsed and I had sores and scratches all over my hands. In the middle of the night, I would be searching for pills in the rugs. And I was really scared I might overdose. I was up to now 100 pills every three days. So I had the brilliant idea of going to the hardware store to buy a safe like I'd seen in Tony Montana and Scarface. I didn't look at the combination, and the plan was to put my mother in charge of my intake and give her full control over it. She would dole out a pill when she saw fit. Now, not only did this prolong my addiction, it created a violent relationship between us. I was constantly threatening to kill her if she didn't open the safe. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd threaten her and I'd beg her and plead her for just one more. I'd proposition her, offer to do extra chores, exchange favors for an extra pill. Years had passed and I was frozen in time, sitting at home, taking drugs, watching television, and making plans to kill myself because my life was in shambles, and I had no idea how to fix it. Then things got worse. My mom had taken out a mortgage on the house, assuming my dad would pay for it like he paid for everything else in her life. But now he was remarried and in hospice dying of lung cancer. He wasn't able to communicate, so our mailbox kept piling up with bills. I'd go out, I'd stuff all the mail into a garbage bag and throw it into the hall closet. I certainly wasn't going to open anything. The flow of money from my dad had stopped, and no amount of yelling or manipulation could turn it back on. Then, one by one, the utilities were shut off. First the phone, then the water, then the electricity. With no filter, the pool became a thick, green, mosquito-infested swamp. The grass grew so tall that a child could get lost on it. 
When our house went dark and silent, the rats assumed we'd moved out, so they moved in. The kitchen disposal no longer worked, so my mom threw all the leftover cat food, and there was a lot, into garbage bags, which spawned maggots, which then turned into an army of big black flies, which flew into the house and lined the ceilings of each room. And the foreclosure notices kept coming, but since neither of us bothered to open the mail, we didn't know that the house was being sold on the courthouse steps in two weeks. And ironically, it was the same day my father died. I was 30 years old then, homeless, jobless, and hopelessly addicted to drugs. And one night, I remember I went out onto the steps, just trying to get away from the rats and the flies to plan my suicide. And I just didn't know how I ended up like this. And then I flashed back to high school. I had to write a paper on The Sun Also Rises, and there was a quote, how did you go bankrupt? Two ways, gradually, then suddenly. I never fully understood the meaning of those words until that moment. And then deep within me, there was a little voice, like a whisper, and it said, maybe it's the drugs. But that possibility, it gave me hope because maybe, maybe if I quit, I could find my way back to myself. So I started coming to meetings. But I could never stay clean for more than eight days at a time because I was still supplying my mother with pills. My sponsor said that the only way to get clean was to go to an inpatient treatment center for a minimum of 60 days. Well, I refused, of course, but deep down I knew she was right. And at this point, I really wanted to live. So I went. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to scream, this is ridiculous, I'm out of here. My first day here, I received four violations for falling asleep in group and was put on a three-week snack ban. The next day, I was supposed to be at the 8 a.m. morning meditation group with Counselor Jim, and I got lost, and I ended up walking through the door 10 minutes late. As punishment, I had to write out the following sentence. Time management is crucial to my recovery. 100 times legibly and in cursive. I tried to explain that I'd lost my orientation schedule and there was no one at the nurse's desk to answer questions. He stared at me and said in that quiet voice of his, behavior has consequences. That was it. I was disgusted at the lack of sympathy all around, and I burst into tears and ran into my room to pack my bag. I sat on the edge of my bed to tie my shoelaces, and then I realized I was too exhausted to leave. I would wait until the morning. When I woke up, I had breakfast, and I realized that I wasn't mad anymore. So I stayed, and now here I am, one year clean and sober, and feeling pretty good. My whole attitude and outlook has changed. So if someone had told my 18-year-old self that at age 40, I'd be working as a diner waitress with no acting career in sight, I would have laughed at them. And if I'd known that on top of that, I would have no home, no car, no bank account, no husband, and no children, but instead had just spent 90 days in a drug treatment facility and now lived in a halfway house with three strangers, honestly, I would have put a gun to my head. But here's the wonder of it all. Even with all those things that on the surface seem so sad, I couldn't be happier. I've never felt more at peace. 
It's funny, being my mother's errand girl, I drove all the time. Essentially, the car was mine, and I loved driving. And I knew if I ever left home, I would probably have to take a bus. And the thought of that was too much. It kept me stuck for a long time. I thought I would be a prisoner without a car. Promises say that in recovery, you will know a new freedom and a new happiness. Well, let me tell you, when I started riding a bicycle, a whole new world opened up. Instead of feeling like a prisoner, I never felt more liberated. I rode down the back roads, went the beaten path through these cute little neighborhoods. I felt the sun on my shoulders, the breeze on my face, observed exotic plants and trees I'd never noticed before. I even lost a little weight. Last week, I got on my bike to head back to the halfway house after my shift was over, when all of a sudden, I felt an expansion happening inside of my body. It was a strange sensation. It felt like religious, almost. And it felt like my soul was uncoiling and opening up. As I rode away, I felt a warm wave of gratitude wash over me. And then, as if on cue, the dark sky opened up and a torrential rain poured down with such force that I could barely pedal forward. And within minutes, the oversized winter sweater from Goodwill that I'd been wearing every day for the last three months was so drenched and heavy with water that it fell down to my ankles. I had to rip it off and throw it in the nearby garbage can on the side of the road. The smell of the years that that sweater had accumulated from its various owners steamed out as I freed myself from it. I was drenched from head to toe. In the past, I would have been miserable and cursing, but instead, I welcomed it. I lifted my head to the sky. I opened my eyes, opened my mouth, and stuck my tongue out like I was a little girl. And all at once, the joy that had been extinguished through all those years in addiction just came roaring back. And these are the types of miracles that will happen for you too. You know, when my sponsor suggested I go to rehab, she gave me this life-saving advice. She said the only way to make it through treatment is to put cement in your boots. She meant stay in treatment, don't leave. I guess my message to all of you is just that. No matter what's going on for you out there, whether it's my daughter needs me or my boyfriend misses me or my cat is dying, whatever it is, believe me, it's just your disease talking and trying to pull you out. But don't listen. Put cement in those boots. Thank you for letting me share. That was The Promises by Janet Weekly. And now, as always, we're excited to have our three authors with us, Lee, Bobby, and Janet, to discuss what inspired them to write these pieces. Lee, we're talking about your piece, London, and I'm so glad yes. that we had it on the podcast. It was um, thrilling to hear it done so beautifully. What I think is interesting about this piece, other than it being very funny, is that so there's three pieces on this podcast and yeah. the other two pieces had this long gestation and other pieces of much bigger works that these people were thinking about. And that's not the case with this piece. Is that correct? 
Yeah, we we did it in one of the. It was the instant. It was write something now. That was like the prompt, <laughs> uh, which was a really interesting, you know, reminder that sometimes writers we overthink things. You know, like for me, this year has been interesting, and that piece was part of this like little mini revelation that I had about myself as a writer, which was I think that I had a tendency to leap too quickly to structure. You know what I mean? Like I have to have the beats, and the story's got to make sense, and it's got to result. All that stuff, and I realized I would do that without like having a full tank of ideas. And like doing this was really a great exercise because first of all, it was super freeing, and secondly, it was a reminder that the beginning of the process, at least for me, is not subject to that kind of structuralist logical thinking. We should just let our brains ramble and roam and pinball around for a while, and then you have something to stru actually structure. <laughs> just so people listening can know, a lot of what the group Curtains on Fire does is prompt-based. But the week we did this one, it was sort of a free association piece run by Ted Wrigley who had people write automatically, which is just usually considered a fun exercise. We don't really expect any of the pieces to really go anywhere. Right. Um, and Ted and I were stunned how complete Lee's piece was. Lee's piece was as good as anything we'd probably ever written in Curtains on Fire. And it was basically oh. off the top of his head. <laughs> when we picked the piece, Lee, did you go back and clean it up or rewrite what was what was eventually performed or did you just go hey they want it let's let's go no I, I i rewrote it prior to the performance but after that initial session and then i went back and cleaned it up a little bit and did a revision but i, I would say that the totality of the piece was basically what i wrote in that hour and a half it's kind of a, like a beatles moment where the whole thing comes to you in one burst and we actually that's right don't. Tell me a little bit about those two people, because, I mean, you know, the fact that you have these two people who were uh, in a drama yeah. thing together. I mean, obviously, I'm guessing that, that that came from some personal experience. This was based on an actual person that I knew at drama school who I played Romeo and she played Juliet. And she was gorgeous and, and, and smart and, and amazing actress. And I had a crush on her that just wouldn't quit, you know. And a lot of the other, like the girls that she talks about when she talks about the party, they're all based on people that I went to, to the drama studio with. So a lot of that, I mean, a lot of the stuff that gets talked about actually did happen. And then there is a certain measure of wishful thinking. That was That's that was my next question. It is, yes. Uh... No, I never hooked up. The drama studio was a great experience, but... I was the youngest person at the school. Like I was the only person and I was the only student who hadn't graduated from college yet. So they were all a little bit more mature than I was. I used to joke, I was just like this erection that just kept like, like with a magnet on it. Like you, 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 you. And so I had a crush on all of them. Did this exercise going to the left brain inform yes. anything you're working on now? It was a little bit life-changing in a small way because it reinforced the, this, I think, mistake in a sense that I'd been making, like sitting down and automatic, like, okay, what's the midpoint? What's the inciting incident? What's, you know, where's the reversal? And I think that this exercise reminded me that you can start with just an idea that's interesting to you and let yourself improvise without a destination. 
letting your unconscious have free reign for a while. I literally remind myself to do it all the time now. And this piece was really instrumental in reminding me of that. Before I let you go, Lee, I have one question, which is when we go to record these pieces, we, yeah. we get a lot of feedback from the people whose pieces we're recording. And if they have very specific casting ideas in their heads, we will want to do whatever makes the writers happy. You had yeah. very specific casting in your head. Do you want to, yeah. do you want to talk about that? <laughs> well, yeah. So, so I cast my daughter, Danielle, as uh, Julia. Danielle is a really gifted performer. She's coming up on her 900th performance of Drunk Shakespeare in New York City. Very skilled. I knew she could do it. And I also knew that because her technical work is so good, that the accent would be flawless, which it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it is easier for me to direct my daughter than any other actor I know. Because she's like, don't be nice to me, dad. Just cut to the chase. Tell me what I need to do. And I'm, because sometimes I'm like, well, honey, you know, I get into dad mode and she reminds me, nope, I don't need that. Just tell me what you want. Tell me what I need to be better. And yeah. um, as you mentioned, Danielle is a performer in Drunk Shakespeare, which anybody can go see in New York right now. They do yes. a phenomenal job and it's a well worth evening of entertainment. You can actually watch Danielle get drunk and try and perform Shakespeare. Lee, thank you very much for uh, letting us do London in, in thank you. the latest podcast. And uh, it's been a real thrill. Bobby, it is so great to have monsters on the podcast. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the piece? What made me think of the piece, unfortunately, was the shooting um, in 2022 in Buffalo, the, the grocery store shooting by a young white man um, of a number of people of color. And it got me thinking about what it might be like to be a parent of someone who commits an atrocity like that. Bobby has brought in multiple pieces about this main character, Kevin, who's the son. The main character is sort of off screen in Monsters. He's the monster for all intents and purposes. And you're playing with an archetype that people will probably be familiar with. I mean, the most common archetype is Jeffrey Dahmer. I hope people hear some of the pieces with Kevin. You get very much into the head of that character and there's some terrifying moments. What was it like to play in the head of Kevin? To be honest, it's kind of fun, um, which does not make me sound uh, uh, completely normal, but I think if most people who write aren't completely normal anyway. Um, but to really think about the difference between the fantasies we have and our sense of ourselves and our anger and our frustration with the world, and then to think, well, what would you ever really go ahead and do something with that anger? Could you be so dispassionate about another person that you would fulfill some of those things that we say in a moment of anger? You also, in the piece, you actually play the mom, which I thought was a sort of a daring move. Was it tough to write the mom and play the mom? It was tough because it's hard to think yourself into um a person in that situation, I think, to some extent. And as I was working on her character um, to think, what does she share with Kevin? And what doesn't she share with Kevin? And how much is she to blame? And how much how much is she like him? Does she have a little bit of that madness in herself? The scene is one of the hardest moments, I think, in the whole story of Kevin, because it's the moment where the mom admits what she did. 
what was it like to put yourself in that headspace? It's a little uncomfortable. I think the version of the mother at first was a little more weepy, was a little more frightened. And then as she evolved for me, there was almost a sense of self-righteousness for her because she really feels like she did the right thing. Um, and she's not actually sorry about it, even though she should have been. And that it took me a long time to get to that spot um, because I don't think that's a natural place to be. But it did seem to naturally evolve out of her disgust for what her son was planning. And you very much play with the sympathies of the audience in this piece. Do you want the audience to be sympathetic? Not necessarily. I think the audience has to go a little bit on this journey with her and decide if she's someone that they can support despite what she's done, because in theory, she saved a lot of people, maybe, but maybe not. And if you're the sort of person that says, well, you don't really know what would have happened, she's utterly unsympathetic. Well, Bobby, I hope we see more of these pieces. And thank you so much for sharing it with the podcast. Thank you so much. Janet. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for bringing the promises to the podcast, which you deftly performed yourself. Tell us about the origins of the promises. Well, I was in the workshop, and as you know, uh, every week we're given a prompt to write about, just one, usually one word or two words, and the prompt of that week was drenched. And um, I thought of the last time that I was drenched, actually was the time when I got caught in the rain I was newly sober. I was living in a halfway house and I was working at the uh, pancake house in Delray Beach. And uh, my shift was over and we had a meeting at our house, at our rehab house. And the meeting was at two o'clock and it was pouring rain. But when I was newly sober and when anybody is, it's very important that you have integrity. And, you know, if you're supposed to be somewhere, you show up and you don't use excuses like, oh, it was raining, I can't get there. And so I took my bike and I rode from work to my halfway house in what turned out to be a torrential downpour. And the sky was very ominous to begin with. And then it just came. And what I didn't realize is that I was having, at that time, a spiritual experience of being cleansed and of my soul kind of expanding and just being at one with the world and just open and alive and all of that came to me as i was writing this is like 20 years later that i'm writing this prompt i'd been sober since 1998 and it happened in 2000 i didn't realize what experience i was having until i wrote about it so it was very special that piece to me because it made me really appreciate what i've gone through janet when you came to the curtains on fire workshop uh, you really uh, kind of came with a mission which this piece is a part of. Uh, yes. You have a very specific story you wanted to tell from the beginning. Right. Um, do you want to talk uh, just a, a tiny bit of, about that? Yeah, when I got clean and sober, I got my life back, I got my humanity back. But that in between time, I basically still lived as a diner waitress. I was full of gratitude and appreciation for being alive and had great personal relationships. But when I went into the workshop, at the urging of my uh, friend, my friend Jake Daler, who was a member, it made me face part of myself that I had abandoned, which was I love to write and I love theater. And when I wrote that piece, it kind of 
plugged me back into something that I still hadn't reconnected with, even though I was clean and sober. One of the most vibrant characters in these pieces is the mother character. The mother character kind of drives so much of, of the story and the action. We find ourselves in the place of young Janet, the ultimate survivor of all of this. Tell us a little bit about the mother. The mother is the toxic mother is a character and it's also funny and full of life, a lot like a, somebody who's bipolar sometimes, but she wasn't. She is evil and she is toxic and I do blame her even though I'm supposed to be over that. But she's also beautiful and intoxicating and children love her and people love her and she's an animal lover. So there's these two sides of her that are almost impossible to explain. So it's hard to write about her sometimes. She was who she was, you know, with no apology. That's my mother. Janet, last question. Is, is there a sense of catharsis when you write these pieces because you're exercising these demons? Yes, there, there is. After I wrote it or wrote a piece in the, in the workshop, I just felt a really deep sense of pride that A, it was a complete story, and B, that I was standing outside it now. I'm not living in the middle of the utter dark torment of having no hope you don't feel the sun. All you could focus on is the dust in the corner. It's a really flat line life. And I, when I wrote any piece that had to do with that, I just felt like, wow, I'm on the other side. That's really special. It's beyond, beyond words to describe how it feels. Well, Janet, thank you so much for sharing the promises with the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. And that's it for podcast number seven. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'd just like to tell you a bit about the productions. London featured Danielle Cohn and Michael J. Tab. Monster featured Bobby Lewillier and Dave Doster. And The Promises featured Janet Weekly and Jake Daler. All of our plays today were directed by Ted Wrigley. And mixed by Alex Bernstein and Dave Doster. Our graphics were created by Pina Carey and our theme music was created by Dave Doster. The Curtains on Fire podcast is produced by us, Ted Wrigley and Alex Bernstein. And thank you so much for listening in. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach out to us at info at risingcurtaintheatercompany.com. Please join us next time for more new works by up-and-coming playwrights. Until next time... Until next time... What? Th this, is, this is where you sort of sing our catchphrase to the tune of, of the police. Oh, but I thought that annoyed you. Kind of, but, but, but now I'm used to it. Okay, cue me. Until next time. Roxanne, you don't have to put on the curtains tonight. Oh my God. Wait, I'm sorry.